Welcome, everybody, to the third of four lost episodes of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel. Joining me once again, as always, is Evie. Hello. Every time I say hello, I actually, like, wave. <laughs> like, you can see me, even though you can't. I know, I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> it's conveyed. <laughs> well, that's good. Like a belt, it's conveyed. <laughs> that one I got! <laughs> And no one's going to get why that's funny, but we will. This is our episode on Mighty Joe Young. Uh. And the sad, sad thing about this episode is, and the reason we sat on it was, we constantly make back reference to an earlier episode that this was meant to be a follow-up to. And that episode is our infamous five-hour-long recording session, which is the only episode we've lost where we covered all yeah. three King Kong movies. Uh-oh. It's actually, like, the saddest thing ever. It was, like, one of our best recording sessions. Too. It was so good. Oh, my God. We had Kevin on. Mm -hmm. It was amazing breakdown of all three of those movies. The thing is, I still have the file. The thing is, it's not that we lost the files. It's the file got corrupted. Mm -hmm. I want to say, like, 95% of the audio is just eaten away. It's like, I still have my entire side of the call, but the entire side of the call, that's you and Kevin, it's just like, It's like little fragments of words. Mm -hmm. And I like tried everything I could to see if I could recover it or fix it or anything. And it's not. And in fact, this is the episode that led to us beginning to record our tracks independently instead of putting our faith in a call recorder. Yeah. So that it wouldn't happen anymore. Yeah. Because that was when Skype also started acting up and was like, oh, we're not going to let you do this anymore. We're not going to let you do this anymore. Yeah. I'm actually glad we did start doing that because the quality just got better. Editorial control got a lot better. I want to say our shows significantly improved in quality, patting myself on the back, as a result of this, because it opened up what we could do editing-wise. Yeah, because we would talk over each other, but you could just isolate the audio track of someone and be like, I can separate they it. made an interesting point, yeah. Which is good, because I chronically interrupt everyone, sorry. No, I chronically interrupt everyone, how dare you? Pistols at, like, 12.35 in the afternoon? This is why we started recording together, because we chronically interrupt each other all the time. That's what true friendship is. <laughs> It's true. It's true. I think just kind of as recap, do you recall what do we think of the original King Kong? It was good. It wasn't great. Like, I remember I thought that the romance was incredibly like the fuck where they're like, and now we're in love and there's no lead up to it. It's just your guy. I'm a girl. Boom. It was very much a movie of its time. I thought for its time, mm -hmm. it was very well put together. The whole Kong fantasy island jungle thing and escaping into the city it was all very well done. It was iconic. It was definitely a classic movie. It wasn't a perfect movie, but it was a classic. Yeah, like you can see why it's a classic. Oh, yeah. And it's still fun to watch. It's still a really mm -hmm. fun, entertaining movie to watch. And the effects actually still surprisingly hold up. Mm -hmm. And then there's the 70s Kong. I remember what I thought of that. Oh, God. That was a pretty shitty movie. Oh, Okay, Kong really wants to fuck Jessica Lange. That's yes. the movie. It's so creepy and gross. Remember the bit where he's literally stalking her across New York and she doesn't realize yeah. there's a giant apron? <laughs> and she's like an idiot the entire time. Like, where's oh, the window yeah. I could stand by? Just, oh, God. I know. But the dude was there. Yeah, and he had the beard. God, that beard. 
Sadly, the dude did not abide. I think also Rene Abergenois? Possibly, I don't. All I remember was, like, Kong wanted to fuck Jessica Lange, that's it. And then the horrible life-size Kong puppet. Oh, God. That just couldn't move. I remember thinking that the eyes were really lifelike, even though it was supposed to be, like, some guy in a suit, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, uh, Rick Baker did the creature effect for the dude in the suit. Yeah. But he designed the makeup, but he wasn't the one who applied it, so it was applied incorrectly, so you could see where the mask was separated from the eyes. Mm-hmm. And then there was that whole bit where it's, like, Horny Kong blowing on Jessica Lang. Oh, yeah, that just, like, <laughs> The why? big inflated cheeks. Ugh, so gross. I'm pretty sure that's the Kong that they have at Universal, isn't it? No, actually, there's actually a really great article about what happened to that Kong. It actually toured around the world for a while and then just kind of ended up resting in a junkyard somewhere. You can still see the remains of it. Is it just as disturbing as I remember it? Well, all the skin and foam is like rotted away as was just the underskeleton. Oh, that's disappointing. Probably still just as disturbing, though. Probably. But yeah, 70s Kong, pretty shitty. Like to the point where I actually think the 80s King Kong lives. It's actually a really fun and charming movie. Was that the one with King Kong boning that you told me about? Oh, yes. It was this one because they find a female Kong. Mm-hmm. First is they save Kong's life from the end of the first movie. They can't give him a heart transplant, but they put an artificial heart in him. And they literally are holding like comically gigantic scalpels and syringes. As you do. Like from an airplane movie. And then they find a female Kong, and they're like, well, let's try to mate them. And, of course, the two escape and just mate along the countryside, and they're like, Linda Hamilton's running after them. And, yeah, there's a whole Kong and Mrs. Kong, giant monkey, Rick Baker, makeup effects sex scene. It's actually a really wonderful movie. I love it. (laughs) I still haven't seen it, but I'm like, I imagine that it would be, like, super disturbing for me to watch. And then there was the Peter Jackson Kong. I love that one. Which I think all three of us actually picked as our final pick. Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, it is a bit overly long, but it's so, so wonderfully crafted. And the thing is, it fleshes out so much, wherein Mm. you have that romance, and I'm like, it makes sense in the context of what we've seen. Yeah. And then, like, her and Kong, and I'm like, it's not really even a romance. It's just a bond. Yeah, she's really protective of him, and he's really protective of her. Yeah. It's so sweet, and I think that's the first time where they really got that right. And I think it's some of Peter Jackson's most powerful filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that whole bit where, in the middle of running through the city, just them in the park together with him on a frozen lake. Yeah. You know, just a moment of serenity before the missiles come in. I also remember that I don't usually care for Jack Black as a comedian, but I do think he's a damn fine dramatic actor. Oh, and he was great in that movie. Oh, he was so good. And then Naomi Watts deserves all the awards for that movie. Yeah. She was essentially like acting opposite a ball on a stick. But even just the physicality of the role, too. Oh, yeah. she's a dancer. She does tons of stunts and action mm-hmm. while wearing nothing. Exactly. I think she's the first one that stands up to Kong that really stands up to him and he kind of respects her for it. Yeah. As opposed to the others where, I mean, Favre, they wouldn't give her anything to do anyway. Right. All she did was scream. But with Jessica Lange, like, she kind of stood up to him for a second and then she doesn't. And that, yeah, there's just this kind of mutual respect builds between the two. Mm-hmm. And just the performance of Kong, Andy Serkis, which again, like, mm-hmm. this was the point where digital effects got to the point where it doesn't even look like digital effects anymore. It's just, it's Kong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's overly long, but even just like the big T-Rexes swinging through the vines. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, that Kong with the two T-Rexes fight. Oh, that's wonderful. Isn't I it? dare Michael Bay to make anything as good as that ever in his Bayformers movies. Well, there were his Playboy videos. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, the Jackson Kong is just, anytime I catch it on TV, I just get absorbed into it, regardless of how long it goes on. I just get mm-hmm. sucked into it. I think there's even like an extended version. I'd be like, bring it. There's no way that he added in more stuff that didn't need to be there. Oh, no, I watched the extended version for that episode, and I actually liked it even more. Mm. It ran longer, but I think it actually filled in a lot of the gaps in that, especially the island section, so it actually made it more deeper and meaningful. Mm-hmm. I love the Jackson call. So then that led us to Mighty Joe Young. And the big problem with the Mighty Joe Young episode is that we repeatedly make reference back to our Kong episode. Yeah. And it's our beautiful lost episode forever. And the thing is, when we recorded the Mighty Joe Young episode, we hadn't lost Kong yet. I think we finished recording Mighty Joe Young, and then I went to start recording Kong, and I'm like, wait, where did you go? You're like, wait, what happened? What? No! There was always some talk that we would probably re-record Kong at some point. I think we even thought about doing it as like a five-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. But then we never made it five years. We only did four and a half. Yeah. So yeah, it just never came. I think we were also just so crushed that we spent like five hours recording that thing in one sitting. I think that's part of it, yeah. And to lose it. And it was just, mm-hmm. oh, I'm glad I have so many backups. <laughs> I have never lost an episode since. I've almost lost episodes since. Our Masters of Carpentry episode of They Live, mm-hmm. I forgot to press record on my end. <gasps> so I straight up didn't have any of my audio. No. But I had the other two audio tracks. And so what I did was I cranked up the volume of both of their tracks to the point where I could just barely make out my voice in their headphones. Mm-hmm. And I recorded brand new audio for myself, just following basically the script of what I had already said. Oh my gosh. Jesus. I was so proud that I managed to fix that. I want to be like your MacGyver, but I feel like MacGyver would look up to you at this point and be like, that's amazing. So that was a fun experiment, but we did not lose it. That's the closest I ever came to losing an episode since Calm. But yeah, so anyways, just I Hate Love Remix on My Dear Young. We had Tessa. Tessa was always one of our favorite guests. And she was adorable. Oh, I love that. And that's why I'm. And Tessa always keeps asking me about this episode and when it's going to come out. Tessa, it's out. Yay! Finally gotten it out for you. I swear, like, Tessa is like sunshine, puppies, kittens, and the laughter of children, like, wrapped up in, like, one human person. So, anyways, without further ado, here is our Mighty Joe Young episode. So, if we're ready to start, I'm good. I have no idea what episode number we're on, so we won't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to part one of the latest episode of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel. Joining me, as always, is Evie. Yeah, me too. <laughs> as long as it's not just me. Yeah, it's that nice era of the season where we all want winter to be over with and it's not over with. Yeah, it's actually quite nice out here, so it's not too, too bad. Of course, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be like the end of summer. <laughs> <laughs> We're once again joined by one of our favorite guests. Everybody welcome Tessa. Beep boop meow. Beep boop meow. Beep boop meow. Beep boop meow. I love you. Can I keep you? And then what's the averted version of that? Meow boop beep. Meow boop beep. Meow boop beep. Meow boop beep. So Tessa, how you doing? I'm doing all right. The caffeine just kicked in. And so now I'm probably the only one on this podcast right now who has energy. (laughs) From the looks of things. Yes, I have caffeine combined with Sudafed in my system right now. That's a fun cocktail. So I'm seeing things. (laughs) So what you been up to lately? Oh, God. Um, Let's see. (laughs) A lot of things. I started doing One Piece Start Again. 
I can't remember whether or not I talked about it on here. Maybe the first time I was on, if I was still doing it. I actually think the first time you were on here was when you were doing your version the first time. Or you had just done it. Yeah, weird how that works. Yeah, I used to do it as a live stream thing. Now I'm going completely pre-recorded, which actually works out much better because I can edit the crap out of it and actually make it look like I'm somewhat entertaining. <laughs> I've been enjoying it so far. It would be cool to have a little bit more viewership, but I'm also only just starting to get to the point where the videos don't suck. So <laughs> I'm in the process right now of redoing a version, which was the first game I ever Let's Played, and it scares the crap out of me. So because I hate myself, I decided I would do it again. The first part's up as of recording this, and the second part's probably going up either today or tomorrow. And I just dated the podcast, so now uh, people can put yeah. two and two together to figure out when we recorded this compared to when it actually came out. So <laughs> basically, uh, by the time this comes out... Three years from now. Yeah. <laughs> Three years from now, you'll be hosting a show on G4 and just be plugging this on the podcast. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that'll happen. Well, G4 just died, so no, it won't. So we just dated the podcast again. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I could probably head a show on a dead network. That probably sounds about right. But yeah, I've got a handful of other games that I'm planning on getting to. Whether or not they happen, I don't know. At this point now, I'm kind of like, with every game I'm getting, it's like, okay, well, do I want to record this or do you want to just play it? Like I actually picked up Saints Row the Third and was like, oh no, I'm just going to play this. And then I started playing it and was like, why am I not recording this? Oh my God. So that might be a thing soon. And the caffeine is definitely kicked in. Oh yeah. Yeah. Before we started like the recording part, I was like, oh man, this caffeine's not really doing much for me. And then you hit record and it was like, oh, hey. It hit the bloodstream. I found this energy reserve right over here. Let me stuff it in my face. Hitting record was like hitting the nitros button. <laughs> Evie, you want to tell us what we're talking about today? I'm sorry, I got confused because Tessa was talking and I just got lost in her adorable voice. And now I'm like, what? We're doing something that's not just listening to Tessa? We could just stop and listen to Tessa just tell us about a movie for an hour. <laughs> we could. <laughs> okay. Movie that we were planning on doing, but I can do that. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about Mighty Joe Young from 1949, starring people who are there and they do things. Yes, the film was directed by Ernest B. Shodsack and was written by Ruth Rose from a story by Marion C. Cooper. So it's pretty much everyone that made King Kong. Yep. <laughs> and since the King Kong episode, which we already recorded, will be coming out before this episode, Evie and I might be referencing back to it from time to time. I will have no idea. You're like, I don't know. <laughs> Seriously, it's all the same people writing it. It's all the same people directing it. That's interesting, actually. I didn't know that. And it's all the same people who did Son of Kong 2, to the point where I'm kind of surprised that this isn't an official Kong film. Yeah. Huh. Is this a film that you had seen before you had to watch it for this podcast? No, I hadn't. I had seen trailers for the remake when I was a kid on TV, but that's it. This is going to be the third movie in the row that this is the case, but I did see the remake, didn't even know the original existed, and this most recent time is the first time I've seen it. And I've seen this one before, but it's probably been about 15 years, because I, I know I saw it back when the remake came out, because TCM would play it a lot. I don't know that I've watched it since, and so this will be my first time revisiting it since. Anyways, why don't we go ahead and move into the film itself. So, Evie, do you recommend this movie? I do... Yes. Okay, the first part of this movie, I was so bored. I was. I was like, <laughs> just for the love of God, I wanted to kill everything with fire. But then they get to the city and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's awesome. Yay. And then by the end, I was in love. So 
Honestly, I wouldn't watch it again, but if you're going to marathon a bunch of ape movies, you may as well put this in there. Otherwise, it's sort of like my recommend with The Mummy was it's like, if you're going to do like all the other ape movies, you may as well fit it in. But I wouldn't recommend going to seek it out. Tessa, do you recommend this movie? I would, but with a few caveats. It's definitely a movie of its time. It's a Harryhausen thing, so it's dated significantly. If you are a fan of that, then by all means, this is probably going to be awesome for you. If you're not, then that kind of drags it down. I had a lot of fun watching it. I think in some cases it was not intentional that it be as funny as I found it. But yeah, it was a fun middle chunk of the movie. So if you want to skip the beginning and the end, then yeah, sure, go for it. And I would also recommend the movie, but with reservations, much like the other two, where it's not a great movie, but it is fun. It has pacing issues. The beginning chunk is just slapped together and bad at times. Some of the acting isn't that great. Ben Johnson shows up as a cowboy in Africa and okay. (laughs) Yeah. Plus, Ben Johnson was never exactly what I would call an actor. Dude, I checked and was just like, okay, he's dead because I'm going to say mean things about him. (laughs) He's had like a massive acting career after this, but mostly in just bit parts. So he's not exactly a leading man. And this movie has him as a leading man. Also, I do agree that the movie does really pick up near the middle when they get into the mainland. And that's when they really reel out the effects and amp up the spectacle. And I think there's some good comedy in there. The effects are really amazing for the time. But the storytelling is still kind of slipshod, especially in the third act where it's like, oh, random orphanage burning down. Oh, God. Uh, We just happened to be driving by. Was I the only one whose print was colored in orange? No, I was mine too. That's the print that they've had ever since the 80s when Ted Turner did that. Okay. Thanks, Ted Turner. You suck. (laughs) Hate you. To be fair, that used to be a common thing in black and white films was to slip in a little color when you needed to for dramatic effect. But it wasn't originally intended to be there in this one. But anyways, I think it's still an enjoyable movie. It's very dated. Yes, especially in terms of the lead characters. But I I really like Joe. I really like Joe. I really like some of the stuff they do with him. And it's a fun movie. Let's just go ahead and tackle Ben Johnson. (laughs) Wow, is he bad. And I feel horrible for saying it, but it's just like he has that Gary Cooper-ness, but without any of the charm or the charisma or the subtlety that Gary Cooper had. He has that Gary Cooper-ness, but without being Gary Cooper. Yeah, Yeah. it's literally like he just comes across as just some guy. And he was. He was just some guy who came to Hollywood as a horse wrangler. And they just stuck him in front of the camera and said, okay, let's make him a leading man. (laughs) He's handsome, I guess. Yeah, he's kind of cute. That's how a lot of people got started, actually, so. You know, and he went on to become a kind of crusty cowboy and like a lot of Peck and Paw used to use him a lot. He would pop up in a lot of Westerns in the 60s and 70s. He's never been a great talent, but he does have that authentic cowboy feel to him. Yeah. I did like some of his golly shucks moments. Yeah, I did think that his character overall was kind of... Thin. Yeah. Useless. <laughs> ah, God. I think he's a... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good thing to say. Uh, he's dead, so you don't have to worry. I checked. He's tall. He's tall. <laughs> he's not good, Tessa. He's not good. You want to be nice, but he's not good. I love how even during the third act, they're like, well, we have to let him save two of the kids. Yeah. yeah. While Joe is stuck on the tree. He goes through this complete MacGyver thing of like stealing a blanket and tying up the two kids and then tying them to a rope and then lowering them down. It's okay. (laughs) While Joe is just stuck there on the tree. Again, he's good looking, but that was kind of it. (laughs) He's very much a C movie lead. Yeah. The guy who'd be starring in sci-fi channel movies. 
we should probably move on to someone who's probably at least a little better is Terry Moore, Jill Young. Though I do feel bad this purported love story that her character has with his because it's literally like... It came out of nowhere. It was the trope of, well, he's a man, she's a woman, therefore they are in love now. Well, yeah, I just hit that point and it's like, well, I guess we're together now. (laughs) Yeah, it's like they don't even build to it and then they just have that moment. She goes, well, I want to go home and I hope you'll come with me. Well, I was hoping you would ask. Yeah, yeah. it was just like, oh, right. are we a thing now? I guess we're a thing now. Okay, we're a thing now. But me and Terry Moore was fine. No, yeah, she's great. Yeah. She fit the character really well. Yeah, I liked her. I liked her gumption. It was also, I was very, very relieved to see her after the opening scene with the kind of god-awful little girl. Oh, God, that shit. I'm like, I don't want to see you anymore. They really drew out that plot point of the flashlight, didn't they? Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, she was cute, but... She felt authentic. I'll give her that. (laughs) It was so bad. But annoyingly authentic. It was so bad. Who was more annoying of a kid, her or the little screaming baby girl that Joe saves? Okay. Who is, like, always, like, standing there crying, and then, like, she stands up and walks in front of the building that's about to collapse, and she's still, like, crying. Okay, okay. that kid was really young. I know. I can stand a baby crying, but that kid with her whole like, oh, well, I shouldn't, but I'm gonna with the flashlight. I was just like, God, I just don't like you, kid. I kind of loved that she's trying to communicate with the two guys. So she's speaking, what, Swahili? And like, they don't understand. It's like, okay, well, I'm just going to say words really slowly and loudly and move my hands. And then suddenly they understand everything she's saying. Yeah, of course. I got to say, when I went in, I had seen the remake more recently. And, you know, the fact that she was orphaned as a child in my head, when they were building up the whole thing with the flashlight, I was like, oh, is the dad going to then accuse these guys of stealing the flashlight and then they're going to kill him in a fight and then she'll be left an orphan in the woods with Joe? Because why are they spending so much time setting up this flashlight? And then they don't do anything with it. Yeah, no reason. It never pays off. (laughs) He just finds out that, oh, I gave him the flashlight, daddy. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. But let's move on. I know. Yeah, that comes to nothing. And then we find out, no, she just grew up normally with her dad. And like, he just died six months before. Right. He died right before they showed up. Yeah. I'm assuming that's a plantation of some kind. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really remember. Yeah, because she says that her dad is coming back from the fields or he's out in the field. Yeah, and they say that there's workers out in the field. Yeah. Who did she leave in charge of that place when she left for America for like half a year? Fuck if we know. Yeah, they don't ever say. And I love how the way that they lure her there is, oh, but you get pretty dresses and parties. Yeah, Yeah, it's like they they really didn't have to do much to convince her. It was just like, oh, hey, shiny, 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 shiny. And she's like, ooh, shiny, 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 shiny. And then they're like, yes. One other guy I really want to bring up is Max O'Hara, played by Robert Armstrong. (laughs) Oh, my God. Who was one of the leads in King Kong. Mm -hmm. It was kind of neat to see them recycle Robert Armstrong. But boy, has he aged since King Kong. Yep. I kept expecting him to tell Ben Johnson's character to go get him pictures of (laughs) Spider-Man. Yes, he was totally J. Jonah Jameson. Okay, that was just me. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was like, it's J. Jonah Jameson, you guys. And I never quite got that at the beginning. He was a publisher at Mm -hmm. first. And then he decided to open a nightclub. Yeah. I thought he was like a promoter. I don't know what he did. Well, because I remember also when they were in Africa, he was writing articles about the expedition where he was completely making shit up. Yeah, they kind of seemed like they were playing him off like he was some sort of journalist person and also did this crazy crap where he would open nightclubs. Yeah. Especially since the implication seemed to be that this wasn't his first out of nowhere. Hey, I'm opening this thing now. Yeah. And it was also weird seeing this so close to King Kong and Son of Kong because... 
In King Kong, he's one of the main leads where he's kind of the proud, the big, the boisterous producer who's giving everything the weight and the heft. He's the one who's always giving everything a dramatic angle. Mm -hmm. And in Son of Kong, he's actually the romantic lead. Oh. And in this film, he's the befuddled old comic relief. Yeah. And he was funny, (laughs) but there were some of those points where- The bit of him trying to get on the horse. Was way- No. Just no. It was too- That was like, it was just too cartoony and too drawn out. And it was like, why are you doing this? Well, now apparently what I found out was that entire sequence with the cowboys trying to surround Joe and all that stuff was all shot from an earlier film like about six seven years earlier that it was a film that fell apart where it's supposed to be cowboys go into the jungle and they find a giant ape and they find dinosaurs and parts of that would then be redone by harry and later in a film called valley of the guanji that was actually the movie that they were shooting that he ended up eventually doing yeah but he didn't go back and reuse this footage he went back and completely remade it it's pretty clear that that entire scene was basically just done to show off the effects yeah but that was a scene where they figured where willis o'brien had an idea for this sequence and they were like let's just go ahead and shoot the sequence and we can build the effects around it later. Oh, really? They didn't even know what creature they were going to put in. So even the gorilla being added in later was entirely done later. Is it just me or was the whole thing with the banana basically like the stop motion equivalent to 3D movies throwing stuff at the audience? It was so horribly done too because the, it was it's like bad. bananas don't move that way. <laughs> yeah. And like it's one of those things that like I had to keep reminding myself that yeah, this was like really cool groundbreaking stuff at the time, but it doesn't really hold up. I think the majority of the effects actually are still pretty good. That was like the only really bad part that I noticed. Like I actually really liked a lot of the bits where he was like yanking cowboys off the horses and stuff. And a lot of that, they actually did use stop motion cowboys on horses too. Well, yeah. Well, you can tell. Well, you can tell some of them were stuntmen being yanked by lines. Where I feel like it was really bad is the end scene with the orphanage where the little kid that he's holding is very, very obviously stop motion. Mm -hmm. I don't mind it. I actually think it's better stop motion than we got in King Kong. I think King Kong had better designed sequences that really showed off the spectacle of everything. This one, it's much more refined, a lot more subtlety to the things. I just don't think they had the best sequences to really show it off. Yeah, and to be fair, this is the first Harryhausen animation thing I've seen in a very long time. This was still Willis O'Brien, and Harryhausen was just his assistant technician on this one. Oh, really? This was the first one that Harryhausen worked on, and he did do the majority of the animation, but a lot of the sequences were still set up by Willis O'Brien, who did the original King Kong. Okay. But there was also some interesting uses of stop motion where I didn't expect it, like when they were showing off the interior of the nightclub. They like filmed like separate plates, like you had the musicians up in the top corner, you had people on the balcony, and it would use stop motion to kind of rack from one section to another because they didn't film all of the nightclub at once. And so they used the special effects to show it all within one shot. Okay, that I didn't actually realize that was what was happening. So that's probably pretty well done then. So (laughs) Yeah, that sequence really surprised me. Yeah, that I did not notice. That, I'm like, what? No. Though, do you think that was just rear screen projection of lions behind the glass? Oh, yeah, that had to be. There's no way that they had like actual lions back there. Well, we should probably talk about this. There's that great sequence where there's the nightclub. And just talk about they really pulled out all the stops for this nightclub. You can see it where all the budget went. Uh, That nightclub scene. That was the point where all my notes turned into LOL white people. 
Though I will say, having seen the intro to King Kong when they bring him out, this is far better. I like it because it's being done tongue in cheek. Yeah. Yeah. Like they do really cool dance number too. Yeah. It's like they know that, yes, they're just playing on awkward stereotypes, but they're making fun of it. Well, and it's one of those things, like I said, it's definitely a product of its time and this wasn't considered as egregious as it would be today. (laughs) I love outside the nightclub, the black guy in the full gear with the spear who's just there to open car doors, who just has this expression of, I fucking hate this job. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, then you got the dancers, you got the lions behind glass, you get this whole massive multi-story nightclub, the band is up in this little balcony off the stage. It was definitely the most fun bit of the movie, although like I said, a lot of that was just like, oh my god, are they really doing this? I even just love the random chatter of all the people in the audience. Yeah. And then you get the whole thing that opens up and it reveals her playing the piano and everyone is just sitting there like, this is what we fucking paid our money for? (laughs) And then suddenly the piano lifts up and there's Joe Young holding her up. That was actually a really nice reveal. That was. It was really cool. Yeah, I liked it. And then I even love the bit then where it's like, let's get the 10 big professional wrestlers strong men to do the tug of war with them. <laughs> that was actually really funny. I liked that one. <laughs> yeah, I even love the one idiot who tries to box Joe. And <laughs> Oh, God, that guy. I love how he then like throws the guy off the stage who smashes into a table in the audience and the audience loves it. Yeah. yeah. And he's fine, too. I'm like, that would have broken my back, but whatever. And then you see the staff just bringing in another table. Yeah. <laughs> There was just so much sharp satire in that scene. I just, I loved it. The guy, was it the Swedish angel, I think? He terrified me, like, with his head. I was like, ah! (laughs) Was that the one who, like, broke the thing on top of his head? Yeah, the piece of wood over his head. Oh, my God. That was so scary. Yeah, that was a latex mask because they actually put a helmet under his cap. Oh, okay. (laughs) They really... He still had a terrifying looking face. Yeah. Like, to good effect. Yeah, I didn't catch that either, so that that was pretty good. It's just, it took the film so long to kind of just build up to their big spectacle sequence. And I actually think the nightclub sequence is even better than King Kong and the theater in King Kong. Oh, yeah. It's just the rest of the movie just isn't quite King Kong. No, but that nightclub sequence, that was so much fun. It's the highlight of the movie and it's worth getting up to that point. Yeah. And even as it goes on and it's like, you know, cut to 10 weeks later where they're miserable, cut to 17 weeks later where they're even more miserable. Mm -hmm. And especially just that really degrading sequence where they have- They're throwing the coins. Adam? He's the monkey and she's with the organ oh, grinder yeah. and everyone's just pelting him with these giant coins. No, honestly, she says that she agreed to that and I'm like, you stupid whore. <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah. Who does that? Like, what part of your fucking brain was like, organ grinder, giant ape, yes. I want to know yeah. the thought process there. He was stuck that little hat on him. That was sad. And they gave him the little cup too. I love how it's like the big reveal. It's kind of funny, but then you just really look at it. It's like, this is really sad. Oh yeah. no, as soon as I saw the organ grinder thing, I'm like, oh no. As soon as we got the coins, I was like, oh no. Yeah. And then they show them and I'm like, oh, no like, me no like. And then you got the three douchebags. Oh, oh my God, God those guys. The three douchebags should go and get Joe drunk and then start torturing him with a cigarette lighter. Well, they get him drunk, but they're so drunk that they're like, he drank all our booze. We don't like him. I like that they really did play on the emotions of what sets off Joe. Mm-hmm. Right. It would also surprise me about this film is that he's not really supposed to be a giant gorilla. He's just a gorilla. Mm-hmm. They just made him look bigger than life. Right. He's not like a King Kong style gorilla. He's essentially just supposed to be a gorilla. It's just because of the way they did the effects, he looks a little larger than normal. Right. Like, this is jumping back a bit, but I kind of liked when you first get to see Joe after the time skip thing, 
how I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy who's like leading the expedition, he says something about how that kind of animal shouldn't even be in this country. And it also kind of explained the reason why she couldn't communicate with them at first. I think Ruth Rose is actually one of the real sharp screenwriters of her time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the characters in this one aren't perfect, but she at least finds little quirks to make characters interesting. She always finds good motivations. She slips in details like that. Yeah, it is interesting that you have this story where there's almost no real antagonist. Like, Max O'Hara doesn't really count. The antagonist is more the situation. Yeah, it's more social acceptance in general. Right. Max O'Hara is not the best guy in the world in the way this is set up, but he also isn't really an antagonist. He's a pseudo-protagonist slash antagonist for the majority of the movie, and then And then when we need to, him to be... When we need to be a good guy, he's suddenly like, oh, hey, I feel terrible about what I've done. Let me do all this stuff for you. It's like King Kong in that he's essentially the person who's supposed to be the bad guy, but we like him so much that then he becomes a pseudo-good guy. Yeah, exactly. And I actually really like that entire sequence where they have to steal Joe. Yeah. And they're basically sabotaging the cops every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Locking them in the building, cutting the phone line. Dropping the fake map so they think you're going north instead of south. Yeah. Sabotaging their car. That was just a really great sequence where it's like, okay, what would be the actual problems you would encounter? And let's actually address it each step of the way. Like that was actually a really funny and really good scene overall compared to the really bad slapstick from earlier in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) I think the problems with the main script were... Ruth Rose is a very good writer, but I think she was just kind of stuck with certain set pieces that she couldn't quite figure out how to work in, like the entire cowboys in Africa thing or the entire orphanage is suddenly on fire thing. Yeah, and it's abruptly, oh, hey, now there's an orphanage on fire and we're here. And well, we needed some way to actually end this movie. So (laughs) we had to make sure that people wouldn't shoot Joe. Right. Because I mean, yeah, both King Kong and Son of Kong had those terribly tragic endings where the gorilla died. In this one, they're like, no, we can't do that again. Yeah. Yeah. But I still am quite, it's just watching this, I'm just kind of surprised of why didn't they just make this a Kong spinoff? Like a daughter of Kong or something. I don't know. Son of Son of Kong. Maybe because at that point, the box office didn't call for it. Like it wasn't financially viable. I know this film actually did end up not doing well at the box office. Mm -hmm. And then a year later, they went and they re-released Kong and it was a huge success. And it was that re-release that actually then caught the attention in Japan, which led them to do Godzilla. Mm. Maybe would they this, just wanted to do something have, different. Um, well, would this have been out in time for that re-release to have happened? or No, I think they did the re-release after this because they lost a lot of money on this and they did the re-release to Riku Koss. And then there actually was a planned sequel to this one where it was going to be Tarzan meets Mighty Joe Young. Yeah, I heard about that. (laughs) Because Tarzan was one of the other big RKO productions of the time. Mm -hmm. But because this movie bombed, they scrapped that. So that would have actually been interesting to see. I don't want that. I just want to see a scene of them just trying to out chest thump one another. (laughs) And then we just find out, no, they've actually been just telling their life stories in Morse code. (laughs) Oh, God. No, you are unbearable. (laughs) So is there anything else we can bring up? I'll be honest, I can't think of anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a pretty simple movie. Yeah, there's not a whole lot to it. And most of it's concentrated right there in the middle. I love how they run into the other guy's truck and then just decide, let's steal his truck. Yeah. <laughs> but then they leave him behind in the old truck so he can tell the police what the new truck is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although it did make for one of the funnier jokes. Yeah. <laughs> and I like Wendy. <gasps> Frank McHugh. I love him. Yeah, who was the assistant to Mr. O'Hara. He was awesome. I love him. I've seen him in so much. And I always love him if he's there i'm like yay and then he's gone and i'm like no 
And that was basically me with this movie. I'm like, yes. And then he's gone. I was like, yeah. Okay, you know what? I like the end where at one point, I can't remember if Joe's throwing something at them or something. And then they like crash or whatever. I can't even remember what happened, but he just spits after them. I was like, that is adorable. I just (laughs) love that bit where he's just sitting there on the back of the truck and just goes like, adorable i'm like i'm dead from cute i don't even care i mean and that's where harry Housen's strength was in giving his characters personality there were so many nice little moments like that from joe mm-hmm. like just his expressions just the way he would take things in and react to things mm-hmm. that i think was always harry Housen's strong suit and he really came out of the gate swing and showing how good he could do it here yeah it's just i wish they had built some better sequences like i actually like that entire sequence where they get the thing stuck in the mud or the sand and like Joe has to get out and push. Yeah. And then the guys come out and start shooting. So that makes him like just kind of basically throw the truck out. <laughs> but then I love how when he climbs back in, he doesn't even go and hide behind the canvas anymore. He's just sitting down there. He's owning the fact that he's in full view now. Yeah. yeah like, I don't even care. I don't yeah. even care. This is how many fucks I give. <laughs> The music was pretty much your typical jungle movie music. Yeah, I don't yeah, remember I any of the music. So I, I don't either. Go. What was the song that her and Joe always used to sing together? Beautiful Dreamer. Yeah, that's what it, I'm like. I know yeah. the song too, but I'm like, yeah. Ultimately, I think the guys who did King Kong never really managed to recapture that success. And this was just another attempt of theirs to recapture the success. And while they didn't pull it off, it's still a fun movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had fun watching it. It's not a classic that everyone needs to see, but it's not something that's going to hurt if you want to kill an hour and a half. Yeah, exactly. It's fun. Especially, you know, if you got some kids, I think it's a good kids Mm -hmm. movie. Uh, yeah. (laughs) If you don't mind troublesome stereotypes. Kids aren't going to get that. Well, no, I guess. I mean, it's no worse than classic Looney Tunes. True. Yeah, fair enough. So is that pretty much your final thoughts on Mighty Joe Young? Yeah, I I don't think there's really anything else to say. Well, we'll be back here soon with part two. Thank you for joining us, Tessa. Thanks for having me again. Good night, Evie. Good night. Welcome, everybody, to part two of the latest episode of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel. Joining me, as always, is Evie. Go hoy hoy. Screw you guys. They're funny. I got nothing. I, I hate you all. I hate you all. I'm not even, I, I, I'm out. I'm done. I'm done. Oh, my God. So how have you been in the months since we recorded part one? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like five minutes ago. Events that <laughs> happened in between the two recordings. That totally happens every time there's one of these things. I'm just pretending that, you know, the space between recording is actually the space between release. <laughs> I love how that one guy who was all like, how dare you, like... Take time. Yeah, take time to edit <laughs> things. And, dude, everything's recorded. We just have to put it out. And then he's like, what do you mean it's all been recorded? Just put it out then. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, but we have this thing where we want things to not sound like total shit. Yeah. Yeah. I will apologize to our listener for the delays we keep hitting. It's just, I do a lot of things, and this is a hobby, not a job. (laughs) If people want to start paying us, the frequency of episodes can probably increase. Otherwise, pipe the fuck down. (laughs) It's a thing that made a fail things do where they take on more things than they can do. Yeah. And me and Kevin are both kind of the embodiments of that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God, the amount of projects going on. And I just started something new and I have two more that are about to start. (laughs) As I said on the episode of Anglophiles that I guessed it on, I hate love remakes. It doesn't come often, but it's good when it does. Yeah, I always enjoy it.
But anyways, we should probably say who our guest is who's talking. Like, they can't recognize her from the voice, and I can't help you. Like, your life is so sad that there is no helping you. That giggle is her signature. Yeah. Aw, guys, you're making me blush. So yes, it's Tessa joining us once again. Oh, hi. How is you people? Oh, we're fine. So what have you been up to in the time since we recorded part one? Well, I went to the bathroom. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the bathroom. So Evie, you want to tell us what we're talking about today? If I must. (laughs) Today, we are going to be talking about the uh, remake of Mighty Joe Young from 1998 with a shitload of people. Yeah. Like, just so many people that I know that I'm like, holy crap, it's that person. And oh my God, they're in this? (laughs) That's literally the entirety of me watching this movie. It's, they're in this? No. Yeah, once they get to the animal preserve, it's like, that scientist is that person, and that scientist is that oh, even person. Even before the animal preserve. Even before. Oh, yeah, when they had all, like, the poachers. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's the other cop from Mike and Molly. <laughs> it's the guy from Lost. Yeah, oh my god, it was awesome. It's Peter Furt, who I know who he is, but not a lot of other people do, which is fine. <laughs> so anyways, before we get into the movie, we should probably say it was directed by Ron Underwood and written by Mark Rosenthal and Lauren. Connor. I like Ron Underwood. I mean, Ron Underwood came out strong with two back-to-back films, Tremors and City Slickers, both of which I love. Unfortunately, the film he did right after Mighty Joe Young was The Adventures of Pluto Nash, which was a career killer. Yep. That sounds familiar, but I can't remember what it was. That was Eddie Murphy in a casino on the moon. Oh, and God. And they put it on the shelf for like years and years and years yeah. and years and years and years. He made it right after Mighty Joe Young, but it didn't come out till like 2002. Mm-hmm. I remember that now. And it wasn't a horrible movie, but it, it was, was just such... I, like it. <laughs> it I find it charming. Movie. I like it. I've watched it several times. I like it. But it's one of those, yeah, of course, Noel likes it type of movies. I will admit that. I'm more charmed by it than I like it. But yeah, it was a horrible tank. And he has since just been directing TV. But good TV. Directing for TV now is different from directing for TV like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, he's had a pretty good consistent career. Castle, Once Upon a Time, Burn Notice. And he does a good job. And he basically also just does like every now and then he'll do a uh, Christmas TV movie like Santa Baby and Santa Baby 2 Christmas Maybe. Uh, yeah, that's how you pay the bills. And Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal are two writers I pretty much hate. I know the name Mark Rosenthal from somewhere. Here's some of the stuff they did. Superman 4. The Sorcerer's Apprentice, that fucker. <laughs> you die. You go to hell and you die. They just did the original draft of that one. Sometimes they come back. They were also the final writers on Aragon, Planet of the Apes. I don't care about Aragon. I never read the book, but oh my God, I had to go see. I saw The Sorcerer's Apprentice in theaters. I like Sorcerer's Apprentice a lot. That one I do really like a lot. I hate that movie. I'm like, this is so boring. I don't like Nicolas Cage, okay? I don't. I don't like Nicolas Cage. Does nothing for me. Is it over now? Nicolas Cage? I don't like Nicolas Cage. What? It's going to be fun when we get to The Wicker Man. But Connor and Rosenthal, I mean, they're perfectly adequate studio hack writers who are they very, suck. they're very formulaic. Yeah. They're very one-liner driven and very crappy one-liner driven. Yeah. <laughs> they're pretty much the studio go-to people when you just need to hack out something. And I fully credit Ron Underwood with this film not being as bad as it could have been with their script. It still has many, many, many problems because of their script. Mm-hmm. But I think he at least managed to kind of elevate it just a little bit. But we'll get into that. Evie, do you recommend this movie? Uh, 
I like the first part, and then I don't like the movie after that. Like, first part up until the mom gets shot? No, like, the first part up until they, like, leave Africa. Okay. I like everything, and then they leave Africa, and I'm like, I don't like this no more. There's a lot of great actors in the second part that I like, but this is one of those movies where I really want to be nice to it, but no, I didn't like it. I can't recommend it, and I feel bad, but I just didn't like it. It's okay, Evie. Show me on the doll where the movie hurt you. (laughs) Right in my heart. It's okay. It's okay. Though I will say that I don't know if it was like an ape or a guy in a costume or animatronics or whatever, because it was really good. So I just assumed it was an ape the entire time. The effects for Joe were really, really good. There was never a real ape. Oh, yeah, I figured. Okay. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm like, "Eh." it was a mixture of a guy in a suit scaled up, a full size animatronic Joe, and then there was the CG Joe. It was done really well. Yeah. And this was Rick Baker. Okay. This is Rick Baker who's really stepped up from when he did King Kong, the 1970s version. Though, again, I don't fault him for the King Kong 1970s version. He did what they wanted. Well, it was like the Mighty Joe Young, the original, where he wasn't the one in charge. He was just working on it under the guy in charge. And this one, he's in charge. Yeah. So this shows that they should have put him in charge. Obviously. Granted, at the time in the 70s, the stuff he was in charge of was like the Incredible Melting Man. Anyways, I I shouldn't step over people's recommends here. (laughs) Yeah, I actually thought it was an ape. So there you go. That was obviously very convincing. The acting, Charlize Theron's in it. She, honestly, if I had just seen this not knowing who she is, she wasn't very good in it. She has moments, but she's not very good. I can't recommend it, but it does have good parts. It's like a really apologetic not recommend. Tessa, do you recommend the movie? Um, yes. Not terribly strongly, but yes. I'll agree that the first half of the movie is a lot stronger than the second half. Second half isn't that bad. Overall, I kind of feel like the story works better than the original's version. It's also very much a product of its time, similar to how the 40s version was a product of its time too. The special effects are really good. The acting is okay. So yes, I recommend it, but mildly. Part of it, I think, is that there's some nostalgia wrapped up in that for me because it was a very specific time that I went to go see it, and I kind of remember that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, despite the fact that this film actually bombed, I remember it actually being kind of popular at the time. Like, a couple years after it was in theaters, it was a TV mainstay Mm. for a while, so I remember it was around. Though, that could be also because the TV rights might have gone for cheap. Well, I mean, it was also a Disney production, so it played on ABC a lot. Mm -hmm. I also recommend the movie... It has problems. I mean, I think the script is very formulaic, especially in the second half. And I think what hurts the second half is that, I mean, the story is, it's formulaic, but it's still perfectly adequate and acceptable. Yeah, I agree. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just predictable and, as I said, formulaic. And I think what kills it in the second half is the Disney moments where they have to stop and make it kind of jokey and add humor and make it so the threat isn't really that threatening. Yeah, sorry. There are some really, really bad comic relief moments. We'll get to those. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) I also didn't like, I mean, I like the guy playing the villain, but I thought the villain was kind of stupid and really shoehorned in. Oh, he's super cartoony. Especially the way they tied him to Joe's origin in a completely random way. Oh my god. And he's like, oh, he's the guy who buys animals and then cuts them up and sells the pieces. It's like, he's the chop shop of extinct animals. Okay. (laughs) And the dialogue is crap. A lot of the one-liners are really silly. But I like the cast. I mean, Charlie's Theron, 
I mean, she's Charlie's Theron. I don't think she's really any worse here than she ever is. Hey. I've never really loved Charlie's Theron in anything, but I've never really hated her in anything either. She's just kind of Charlie's Theron. And you have to admit, I mean, she was still young. This was one of her first major movies. Before this, her only other big part was The Devil's Advocate. I mean, just three years before this, she was an extra in Children of the Corn 3. So, I mean, mm. she was still new. So, you know, I'm willing to give some allowances. I think she fits the character as needed decently. I like Bill Paxton, even though he's essentially playing the exact same role he played in both Titanic and Twister. Oh, yeah. He, he's Bill Paxton at this point. He's like, I'm Bill Paxton. <laughs> you could almost like say that he is the same character in all three films and he's just going from one nature documentary to another. You know what? I kind of <laughs> like that. It's okay. It's a fine movie. I mean, I actually think what really saves this movie are, I think, Ron Underwood's direction. It's nothing to write home about, but it's very nice and clean and competently done. And the effects work is really good. I'm sorry. Now I'm just thinking of Bill Paxton as being the 007 of nature documentaries. (laughs) (laughs) I want this because of reasons. (laughs) That's what Shark Attack 3D was missing. Was Bill Paxton there trying to save the sharks? Yes, that is what it was missing. (laughs) Yes, you are totally right. That is what it was missing. We need to make the people understand. That is what Shark Attack 3, Megalodon, that's the one you're talking about, right? No, I was talking about Shark Attack 3D, the one by the snakes on the plane guy. Okay, yes, that is what it was missing. Bill Paxton. If Bill Paxton had been there, the movie would have been perfection. They're only eating the teenagers because people don't understand them. We're not even like gonna, no, we're done here. What really saves this movie is the effects work. And just Rick Baker's creature effects on Joe is just spectacular. It is. Oh yeah. Evie, we talked about how great the King Kong was in Peter Jackson's King Kong. Mm -hmm. This one is, I would say, just as good. If not better. I mean, that Kong was entirely CG with the exception of a few hands. This one manages to pull off with practical effects, something that's almost every bit as good. And even the CG, it's still kind of 90 CG in that it still has that gloss to it, but it's still very well animated CG. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things that I couldn't tell where the CG was. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. I could kind of pick out certain moments where I'm like, I don't think this is here, but... And it was one of those ones that you, you kind of really had to look close to really kind of see that it still had some of that smoothness from CG mm-hmm. because they really did blend it well. Oh, yeah. And so I think that is the saving grace of this movie. This is a movie that it would be completely unwatchable if the effects were about on par with Baby's Secret of the Lost Legend or whatever, that one where they find the two giant brontosauruses. But thankfully, they're really good effects. Yeah. Even just the great expressiveness on Joe's face. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, come on, I thought it was a real monkey. Yeah. And that was Vern Troyer as Baby Joe. For reals? Yeah. Holy crap. Wait, seriously? Yeah. I thought that was, a, okay, that wasn't a real ape? No, or even this? the baby Joe was Vern Troyer in a Rick Baker outfit. Holy shit. Wow. Okay. okay. Wow. Like, I keep expecting to be like going like, oh, no, just kidding. Gotcha. When you have to remember that Rick Baker, and we're pretty much in open discussion by now, Rick Baker right. got his job on this, not because of his work on the King Kong movies, but because of his work on, what was it, the Jane Goodall movie? Gorillas of the Mist? Gorillas of the Mist, where all of those were guys in Rick Baker suits. Yeah. Huh. And people didn't believe it. People thought those were real gorillas. And so there were real gorillas at points. At points, but the majority of it is mainly for safety reasons. Yeah, well, exactly. Because if you look at a gorilla the wrong way, it will kill you. What I really like with this one is that you still have Joe being this fully fleshed out character with tons of personality 
without being basically a cartoon character, which the original kind of was. I mean, as good of a character as he was, he was basically a cartoon character. Yeah. This one treats him more like an actual animal and less like a wacky, you know. So they're almost, did you see the intelligence? Yeah. (laughs) And yet it's still very much his own character. He's an animal, but an animal that's very easy to understand. And that's kind of one of the great tragedies of the story is that if you just stop and pay attention to him, you'll see what it is that he's thinking and reacting to. But nobody takes the moment to do that except for the two leads. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when the movie starts, was I the only one who was literally like, I'm about to watch Diane Fossey versus the Great White Hunter, right? Right? (laughs) I knew that's what was going to happen. Then it happened. I was just like, God damn it. Formulaic and predictable writing. Uh, Yes. The the acting saved it for me, though. The acting saved I'll admit I was crying pretty hard. Yeah. When that, Th- that happened. the way that it was shot and the acting saved it for me. Like at the end, the, especially where she's lying on the ground. Like yeah, the transition from the song to the funeral, yeah. I kind of lost it. I don't know if I was just in the right mood or what, but it hit me pretty hard. Dude, I had just had a cup of coffee and a piece of pie. I was in a good mood and I started bawling. I did like that moment where her and her mother are just curled there on the ground singing the song. And then there's that moment where uh, Joe reaches over and he takes the mom's hand. Oh. I was like, Yeah. Yeah. It's literally like I ugly cried. It was so (laughs) My problem was, you know, the obvious dialogue is obvious of that little monster. He bit off my trigger finger and thumb. That that was (laughs) was something that was so dubbed in ADR. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like, let me say something very specific and obvious so that 20 years in the future, when I say it again, (laughs) 12 years in the future, whatever. In the future. (laughs) Um, One actor that I really actually want to compliment here is Robert Wisdom. He plays uh, Quayley. He was so good. In everything he's in, he is fantastic. Got a little heavy on the anti-poaching message. I like the inclusion of the anti-poaching message in the beginning of the movie, but I think that's not something you needed to keep carrying on throughout the entirety of the movie. And that's why I said it's kind of still a product of its time, because like the environmentalist thing was a big push in the mid-90s. It fits, but they really hammered it home. It fit the first act of the movie perfectly. Oh, yeah. I especially like that, you know, he hires trackers, but they're poachers. Right. And they're used to poaching and they aren't used to the fact that they're being hired now by a conservationist. Right. Their assumption is like, you know, when he pulls out the gun, it's like, oh, okay, we know what's going on here. And it's like, oh, no, it's it's tranquilizer nerds. And then I even like the entire bit that then once the presence of Joe is known... That suddenly brings an entire swarm of poachers to the mountain. Right. Who all want to get their hands on this giant thing. That's great. But once you then escape and take him to civilization, the message then is now on the way that we've contained animals safely. If we try to say animals are happy and cheerful in the cages we put them in. And I think that's the message you needed then. But then, no, they bring the poacher thing back. Right. This is just because I know things that it completely bothered me when that one guy who is, I guess, selling or giving the panda to the poacher, because, you know, wherever it is that they've been keeping the panda, they can't afford to blah, dee, blah, blah, blah. 
And I'm just sitting there going, um, actually, all pandas are considered the property of China and are considered on loan. And if you can't take care of your panda that you have, it's going back to China. You don't put it elsewhere. Like if the Chinese government comes back to you and is like, hi, we'd like our panda back. And you're like, oh, I gave it to this guy. You can't do that. That's just such a weird thing of he has basically set up this animal conservatory slash chop shop as a cover for then when he gets the animals, he'll literally slice them up and sell the pieces on the black market. But then he still has animals wandering around outside. But does he? Did we ever see them? Yeah, there, there, yeah there's you one see it in the, in the transition to that scene. Where there's like a giraffe and some stuff wandering around outside. Why did someone want the organs of the panda? I don't, I don't know. People know. are fucking weird. I'm sure probably there's some reason or another. You can think of like, you know, folk remedies and stuff like that, but the people who probably believe in those folk remedies aren't the people who are going to be paying you millions of dollars for it. This is true. I don't know. It to was be stupid honest, anyway, like yeah. on top of everything else. We need a villain to be villainous because we need a villain. Where's the villain? Who Here's the villain. Yeah, he was kind of paper thin, to be honest. He's not very complex. And no like kidding. I said, he's, he's very, he's very, very Saturday morning cartoon villain. And I love how it's like, you know, the one guy tells him, we got a 2,000 pound gorilla. He's like, ha ha, ha shut up. Yeah, I love, I'm like, hang up on Saeed. And then he's watching TV and he's like, holy crap, there actually is a 2,000 pound gorilla. Hey, wait, I remember her. <laughs> I killed her mother and that little bastard bit my trigger finger off. I love that he was yeah, the, 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 like, the leaps, that that was the gorilla? The leaps in logic were kind of like, okay, we need to bridge these parts of the movie together now. This is Lawrence Connor, Mark Rosenthal writing, and this is the type of writing that I hate. That's yeah. Cool. I mean, I understand that he could know that that was the same little girl because he would know who her mother was. Right. That part I makes sense. I understand that. But the monkey thing, I'm like, no, that's way too much of a leap. He's putting three and eight together. And yeah. It's like, yeah. Yes, because there are no other monkeys. Oh, that was the other interesting thing was I mentioned in the original one that Joe wasn't really meant to be abnormally large. That was just their gorilla effect. It just made him look big. Right. And he was basically about the size of a bear, like a grizzly bear. And this one, now they King Konged him, but they never explain it. They just have it be that- He just grows abnormally fast. He basically just has giantism. Right. Yeah, they did kind of explain it that it's some kind of gene. It was it like was very, obsessive. very, very handwavy. Well, they never even explained it as a gene. It was just the kid pointed out to the mom that, oh yeah, that's Joe. And the mom's like, well, he shouldn't be that big. He's only three months old. No, there oh, is a line yeah. later on where they talk about how, I think it's like after they get into the conservatory, the conservatory oh, where they're yeah, like, oh yeah, you, there's this recessive gene every so many generations, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. I can see why you missed it because it was literally blink and you miss it. Yeah, it was like one sentence basically. So. See, the thing is, very few animals actually get giantism, but the ones that do, like ligers, the lion tiger hybrids. <laughs> ligers. So <laughs> I'm not sure that's what they're called. They're, it's a lion I tiger know, hybrid. But it's from Napoleon Dynamite, and I love it. Where a lot of them get severe giantism and they can barely move because of it. Mm -hmm. You know, a gorilla who gets, who has like this recessive gene who gets as big as Joe Young gets here, he's basically going to be like Andre the Giant. He's yeah. probably going to be strong for a few years and then he's going to like severely damage his back and have his heart problems and barely be able to move. Well, it's one of those things that giant stuff in movies kind of works because it works because people yeah. want to see it. <laughs> it made sense in King Kong because this is supposed to be a primordial group of apes who have evolved that size and so they're kind of built for it. Whereas Joe Young, if it's just like this random gene thing that comes out, that can really mess up a body. Most people who get giantism, they don't live to age 40. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, we're just kind of like hand wave that, oh, he's giant. 
Because no, he's giant and it's fine. But then again, it wouldn't really work to just have it be that, oh, he's just a gorilla. Well, it's one of those things that like that works in the 40s version because yeah. it's well, especially because of the shift in what the point of bringing Joe out of Africa actually was. Like in the one, they're bringing him out because it's like, oh, hey, we're putting on this show. And this one, it's like, no, we're trying to protect him. And also, gorillas were still a relatively recent discovery at the time that hadn't really been fully studied. So there wasn't a whole lot of science on how big do they get? What are the limits to their growth and stuff? They were still this kind of random spectacle thing that, you know, you only hear about in random jungle adventures. Yeah. Because I think gorillas were only rediscovered in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, because they were thought to be extinct for a while. And then they were found in the middle of Africa by an expedition. And so it wasn't until like the 50s and 60s that most people started really exploring them. And Diane Fossey, who was murdered. Diane Fossey, yeah. Jane Goodall's the recent one, that's right. Actually, they both did it at the same time. It's just Fossey was the one that was murdered. Yeah. It makes sense that in the original, it's just a gorilla, but it's a sensationalized gorilla. But in this one, yeah, you do need that extra kick. Yeah. And it should also be noted that this film also contributed to the remake of King Kong being pushed back a few years. And then we got Peter Jackson, so that's fine. Well, no, but Peter Jackson, when he first signed on to it, was 1996. Yeah, but in that time, he also had time to do Lord of the Rings. Rings, So I'm fine with that. Yeah. The parallels between the movies are kind of interesting, too. The one motif they decided to bring back is the flashlight. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> I like I, I, I felt, like that, actually. I like that. I, did. I don't know if that was intentional or if it was just one of oh, those. Oh, it had to be. There's I, no way been, that that it, was. It was like the same kind of flashlight. It had to have been intentional. Yeah, there's no way it was intentional, but there was a payoff to it this time. And I actually like that moment where the spotlight from the fair, he sees in the distance and thinks mm-hmm. that it's her. Yeah. And goes towards it. Makes a lot more sense than the orphanage. Well, let's go ahead and get to the um, Joe on the loose and the unfortunate humor. Oh, God. Like Joe versus the car alarm. Oh, God. That was the one moment that Joe stopped working for me as a character. I love you got those four teenage boys who are like cheering him on. Go, Joe. Go, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that was that thought was, it was funny. I actually liked the moment with the four teenage girls that it went on along. That actually was a good moment. They see this giant ape coming towards their car and they're all screaming. He just picks it up and sets it aside and walks past. And then the one starts laughing and then the others are like, that's not funny. Stop laughing. That was so cool. <laughs> and I did like the one guy, the one really annoying douchebag in the car is like, what? You've never seen an accent before? <laughs> and he's like just screaming as Joe's like climbing all over his car. And then Joe just mm-hmm. looks back at him, snorts and shakes his head. Yeah. <laughs> that was the moment I would keep. That was the trailer moment. Yeah. Those two bits of that were actually pretty good. The, oh God, that sitting on the car thing though is just like, oh, okay, that was too much. No, now this yeah. doesn't work. Even when he's literally just sitting there and like nods. Yeah. It's a very deliberate thing. I think also what kills it are the four kids. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Up until the point where he just decides to sit on the thing. It's a very deliberate choice that he makes to, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this because it's going to be funny. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, no, that doesn't seem right. And it is interesting contrasting this with Peter Jackson's Kong, where Peter Jackson's Kong did kill a lot of people (laughs) when he was just freaking out in the middle of the city. Joe is just kind of walking down the street. And everyone is like freaking out around him. He's just like, (laughs) like randomly like bark at you and then just keep walking. Yeah. I think part of it was the Disneyfication of it. They couldn't go too far. Oh, of course. The only time you really see any residual damage is that one guy's leg that he breaks. Yeah. But other than that, everyone is pretty safe. I mean, like there's even that bit in the carnival where everyone is at the shooting gallery and he walks up behind them and like roars and the guy who runs the gallery freaks out, but they can't even hear him because they're wearing headphones. Yeah. Which, what kind of guns are you using? (laughs) Damn it, America. Seeing people with guns 
shooting targets of gorillas, you'd think something would happen. Yeah, yeah I there's you something would, there. You would think. He roars, they don't hear him, and we cut away. Yeah, I can see why it didn't happen. And I love how basically things at the carnival don't really get fucked up until the villain happens just so we can blame the villain for the fire. Right. Because it's the fire that really makes havoc, Mm -hmm. and it's his fault because he's the villain, and nothing can be the fault of the hero. Right. Because Joe was just there. He didn't even break the spotlight. He just was there. It did work much better for me than the orphanage scene in the original, but that's only really because, well, I don't know. It wasn't the orphanage scene. That's literally the only compliment we can give it. Other than the contrived bit of the villain was the guy who started the fire, I did like the sequence. I even like the fact that the cops show up just as he kills the villain. So the cops clearly see him killing somebody and then that causes them to freak out. Yeah. That was a really nice bit of timing. I mean, it was forced timing, but it was a nice clever bit. Right. And I thought the whole bit of him climbing the Ferris wheel was much better than the getting stuck on the tree in the original. Yeah, definitely. I do kind of have to say that as cartoonish a villain as the villain was, I actually really liked him. <laughs> the actor's good. Yeah, he, the actor We've is really good. We've seen him before, Noel. He was in The Fog, yeah. Yeah, he was also in everything. He was fun. It was a contrived character, but I still had fun with it. He's one of those good character actors who always gives a nice defendable performance, even though it's a really badly written... His character was even worse written in The Fog. But he was really good in X-Men First Class. He was a good actor as the villain, and I kind of like that his henchman, who's like this really nasty goon, the moment that he realizes his boss is trying to kill the woman and not Joe, right? he's like, whoa, wait. Which I think is so fucking funny because he knows that guy killed the mom. Yeah. When did you fucking grow a calling chance within like the last five seconds? It was a moment of disnification. Yeah, it was. But I thought the actor still played it decently. To be totally fair, there's also a period of 12 years in between there. That may have been weighing on him. I don't know. And then there's also the poacher jingle chains. That works way better as a means to set Joe off than getting him drunk. (laughs) Yeah, that was a nice layered in motif. But you would think when Joe had that momentary freak out, they were like, can we check surveillance cameras and see what led up to the freak out? You clearly see this guy holding up this massive thing. Did they even have surveillance cameras? I mean, this was 1998. That was not technology that was unavailable in 1998, right. especially for animal conservatories. Oh, yeah. They, like, they had to have. As but far it's a as fundraiser a- for rich people. No, no. But even just the day before when he was just there pissing off Joe. Yeah, yeah you think so. But maybe they're just really shitty about their tapes. I don't know. I would also point that out as shitty writing from Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal. Oh, yeah. This is <laughs> oh, like yes. on par with like the panda thing where I'm like, no, that's going back to China. And it's this whole thing of, we can't let her in the cage because she's not an employee, but she's in charge of the project. So fucking hire her. Yeah, it's like, duh. And then it's like 20 minutes later, I want you to put her on the payroll. Okay. <laughs> that did work for me a little bit just because David Pamer's character was kind of a dork. He's basically playing- he's got the lobster saucer ever down the front of his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, it's all ruined. Yeah. Him and Regina King actually play really well off each other. They do. I actually like then in the end where, you know, we think that he's like running away and that he is actually helping. Yeah. And that was the one great bit of writing was when they sneak Joe into the van and then you reveal that it's the bad guy who's driving the truck. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was awesome. That was the one really nice reveal. 
Because it was like, you think, oh my God, they're finally saving him. They're finally rescuing him. Oh shit. Yeah. And I even like the bit where David Paymer thinks Joe is attacking him, but he's playing hide and go seek. I love that yeah. where she's like, just I jump love- out and say, you found me. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, he knows he found me. Just do it. I love when Joe does his excited face. Yeah. I love oh that. My God, I love that he gets all so happy and excited. That was so adorable. Oh my God. When I've ever seen gorillas, when I've been in a zoo, and it's honestly the most depressing place ever. Like, if you want to be super depressed, go to a zoo. You'll end up crying like I did. But yeah, you don't look directly into the eyes of the gorilla because they take that as a challenge and then they try to kill you. Or fling poop at you. Yeah, so, you know. (laughs) You know, if this film weren't by Disney, there would have been a scene where David Pamer would be making an ass of himself and then something this massive wad of poo would just fly in from off screen and pelt him to the ground. There was gorilla poo in the beginning of the movie. Well, yeah, there was the, the, what's his name? large drop. Held up, yeah. So there was poo, Noel. There was poo. And that's a tag for one of these. There was poo, Noel. I will concede that there was indeed poo. (laughs) Poo of a simian nature. Well, good night, everybody. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there was the whole, uh, was it Man's Chinese Theater? Yeah. Yeah. We got to have him climb the theater and do the chest thumping thing, just because it's like King Kong. Yeah, that was a little bit forced. (laughs) And that was the thing I was surprised was that this was a Disney production, but it was despite the fact that RKO was typically bought out by Warner Brothers. But I found out this was actually the last RKO production. Really? It was a co-production between the final remnants of RKO and Disney. And the fact that it bombed was probably the reason why it was the last. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, this film cost $90 million. It only took in 50 Oof. Which surprises me. I mean, this is a film, despite the fact that I have problems with it, this is a crowd pleaser. I mean, I think it's a nice summer film that would do well, but I guess it depends on what it came out against. Prince of Egypt, the Rugrats movie, Babe, Pig in the City, A Bug's Life, and Patch Adams. When did it this came release? Out of- yeah, it was December. Okay. This, oh, yeah. So it, this should have been a summer movie. See, I yeah. actually saw this New Year's Eve. See, this is the type of thing you got to release in the summer because that's when the kids aren't in school. Or yeah, this is a no, fuck you, it's January movie where you are definitely going to make money because there's nothing else out. Well, I mean, typically when they release things on Christmas, that's typically, you know, let's try to cash in on the holiday break. But the problem is, is that then once the holiday break ends, you're instantly cutting off kids going to see the movie. When it released also is part of where my nostalgia for it comes because I saw it literally New Year's Eve. We were waiting for New Year's Day to like take over. So I think my uncle was over and he was like, okay, well, let's go see a movie while we're waiting for midnight to happen. It was the year that I got Pokemon for Christmas. And so that's where my brain was. I can't remember if I saw it in theaters or not. I know I saw it as soon as it hit video. I know I rented it from Blockbuster at the time. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw it in theaters, though. I know that it's a film that did clean up once it hit home video. So mm. I mean, it didn't like completely die. Well, that's good. It managed to still find an audience afterwards. And I'm glad. I mean, it's not a great film, but I'm glad it at least found its audience. Yeah. Oh, one of the other things I wanted to mention, Terry Moore, the actress from the first film, and Ray Harryhausen having the cameo as the couple at the party. Oh, really? I didn't even... Oh, my God. She's the old woman who looks at her and says, she looks so familiar. And he's the old guy who, like, kisses her hand and says, she looks just like you did back in the day, dear, or something like that. Oh, oh my as God. As soon as you said that oh they were the God. old couple, I was like, yeah. I know what you mean. That was Terry Moore and Ray Harryhausen. That Aww. is awesome, and I wish I had caught that. The score... It was very Disney. Yeah. It was a little too magical chimes moments. 
I really liked the stuff from the beginning of the film, and that's the only music I can remember. Everything else, I'm trying to think of anything else that I heard. It wasn't bad for the movie at the time. I don't remember thinking it was bad music, but I can't remember anything aside from that opening. I did like the moment when Bill Paxton and Charlie Theron are on the beach. The song that the saxophonist is playing is Beautiful Dreamer. Mm-hmm. And then even when they had little romantic moments later on, Beautiful Dreamer would kind of slip into the score as part of their love theme. I like That's it. cool. I, I like that. That was a nice little tip of that to the original. Frankly, I was just happy that they actually had more of a development there. As opposed oh, to, yeah, yes, totally. we're just in love now. Like, yeah. Though it did follow the formula of they hate each other. Now they understand each other. Now they love each other. Yeah. Well, technically, he didn't hate her. She hated him. No, he thought he, she was hot. <laughs> From the second he saw her, he's like, that is hot. I like that bit where he follows her into the woods and sees her playing hide and go seek with my Jang, And then Joe just picks up the tree that he's behind. Yeah. <laughs> well, he just yanks it up and then he's just like, oh, you're not chill. And then I love she picks up his video camera and goes, okay, it looks like it's fine. And then smashes it against yeah. the tree. And he's just like, oh, okay, thanks. And it's like, I can fix that. Just beats it against the tree. It's a fine film. Yeah. Fine and like it's a perfectly acceptable, adequate movie. Pretty much. I would even say it's a little better than just acceptable. It's not a bad movie. It's really not. It's enjoyable. Yeah. But really, we're making a lot of excuses for it because it's not that good. I think it has a weak script. Yeah, it's not a great movie, but it's not a bad movie either. I would say the script is what's adequate, but everything else is like the cast, the effects, the direction are better than the script that they're stuck with. Yes, I would agree with that. I still like the movie. So I guess this would bring us to, are we ready for the final question? If we had to pick between one of these movies to watch once a year, every year for the rest of your life, which would it be? Can I take the first part of this movie and then the second part from the original and glue them together and make like, <laughs> a super magic awesome movie? Oh my Can god, that, that movie would make no goddamn sense, but it would be fun. <laughs> no. I don't care, it would be hilarious. <laughs> suddenly Bill Paxton becomes Ben Johnson, that's a step down. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly you're like, game over, man, game over. <laughs> yeah, but then we throw uh, J. Jonah Jameson Jr. in there and, you know, that brings it back up again. Jumping from Poacher Guy to J. Jonah Jameson, that's definitely a step up. (laughs) You know what? I think I'd go with the remake just because I didn't know it wasn't a real gorilla. Damn it. They win because I didn't know it was a real gorilla. Yeah. It's a stupid reason and I don't care if it's a stupid reason. It's my reason and my reason is I didn't know it was a gorilla. I will flat out say that this film deserves to be watched just because that truly is some of the best creature effects ever done. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Even just the moist lip. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just kept looking at the lip. Like, how did he get the lip so perfect? Like, that's why I thought it was a real gorilla. Because I'm like, okay, you know, maybe they shot something and they just kind of spliced it in weirdly like they did with bringing up baby. Because I'm like, the lip looked right. I love that I even just blew your mind by saying, no, that was Vern Troyer's. (laughs) (laughs) You mean that wasn't a baby? Let me not understand. Because now I'm just suddenly imagining Baby Joe running around going, "Ee!" <laughs> Tessa, same question to you. Oh, geez. Okay. If I could cut off the beginning and end of the original and just watch the middle, then that one. If I can't do that, then the remake. Yeah, you can't just cut off parts of it. Then the remake. This isn't an endangered animal and you're not a poacher. Oh, <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Too soon, Noel. Too soon. <laughs> it's not a panda, damn it. It's not a panda. Jingle, 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 jingle. That should have been the main music theme of the movie. Jingle, yeah. jingle, 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 jingle. <laughs> Buddy Joe Dong. Jingle, 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 jingle. <laughs> 
Okay. So yeah, in all seriousness, the remake. I would agree with the remake. I think the remake is the most consistent of the two, but I don't think anything in the remake is quite as strong as that middle section of the original, which Mm -hmm. was spectacular. I mean, especially just given the time that it was done, just some of that great sharp satire writing, just the pure spectacle of the nightclub. And that scene, I just love so much. But the beginning and the end just kill it for me. The beginning and the climax, Mm -hmm. yeah, just are supposed to be this big spectacle moments. But it's kind of like, you know, Princess Bride in the script, the big final sword fight when he catches up with the six fingered man was supposed to be even more spectacular of a fight than the one between him and Wesley. Mm -hmm. But it didn't happen. So it just blows its wad in the middle. (laughs) Not to get too blunt. It does. It, it comes early. It blows its spot in the middle. Uh, and uh. it doesn't quite ever live up to that. And I think the only reason the middle is so strong is because it had such a weak opening that expectations were so much lowered. Mm-hmm. Whereas the remake, it's not fantastic, but it's very consistent. It's right. very enjoyable. As we said, the makeup effects are just spectacular. It's a very generic story, but it looks great. I go to remake. Yeah. Which surprised me. I actually went in expecting I was going to recommend the original. Yeah, I was like, no way is he recommending the original. Like, <laughs> I know, seriously. Like, that wasn't even a thing. If you had done that, I would have been like, no, flipping every table. That's not even. <laughs> like I said, I mean, I was joking, but at the same time, it's kind of true. If you could cut off the really, really boring beginning and ending, then the original is actually really, really fun. It's just mm-hmm. that I don't want to watch the beginning or the ending again. Here's the thing. I think with the remake... All it required really were like 15 minutes worth of changes. Mm -hmm. And that basically means stripping the poacher out of everything but the opening sequence. So you don't need to have him be the one antagonizing Joe. You just have Joe gets fed up with the new living situation. Mm -hmm. And then people don't understand him and fear him. Yeah. Or just Joe gets freaked out by the fact that there are so many people and they're staring and taking pictures. Or even maybe somebody jingles their car keys or something. Yeah. One of the guys working at the zoo has the keychain that he uses for all the cells. There you go. And he doesn't realize that he's setting them off. Well, and then that suddenly makes the whole, oh my gosh, we don't know why this is happening thing a little bit more... Like if you have like the whole thing just kind of be an accident, it gives a little bit more power to the whole, oh, hey, he's freaking out. We have no clue why. And then people freak out and make the situation worse. Right. You could have had the same thing happen as the original. Like I don't mind there being an actual villain, but you could have done the same thing that the original did and have the situation be the problem and not an actual person. I don't mind that there's a villain. I just don't like the way he's shoehorned in there. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you just cut some of the gags and it becomes better. Yeah. There's a lot of lighters that didn't really need to be in this thing. Most of them are still acceptable. There's only a few that are really bad and really need to go away. Yeah. If you just like trim a few bits like that, replace the villain with what we said, you have a much better movie. But I think the fact that it's so little of the movie is that bad is enough to keep the entire film sinking. Right. The rest Mm -hmm. of the film still works in spite of those bits. Right. I think that brings us to the end. Yay, we all agreed again. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Did we agree on all? What was it? Yep. Ocean's Eleven, yeah, we agreed on. Well, yes, of course we agreed on that one. <laughs> we came to a stalemate with uh, Lady Killers. We broke the question. Lady, Lady Killers, Killers, yeah, we just couldn't pick. That's right. Yeah. None that of was us the one could. where we broke the question. So we were like, <laughs> I forgot. <yeah. laughs> that was when the rule was created that if all three of us could not agree, then the question would then be moot. And with Mighty Joe Young, neither of them are better than the other. One's more consistent than the other, but there's no real winner between that. Yeah, because neither one of them is great and neither one of them is awful. Mm -hmm. They're both, I think, enjoyable movies that you could kill an afternoon with. Yeah. And have fun with. 
provided you can get past Ben Johnson. <laughs> yeah, that, that that might be you know kind of hard. Well, I could I could rope a gorilla. <laughs> I love how he literally uses his lasso skills to climb up the wall and save the day. No. God damn it, Johnson! Oh. Get me pictures of Spider Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's gonna watch that movie one day. They're going to splice in footage of him as J. Jonah Jameson. Or someone will do one of those trailers of like if Spider-Man was made in the 40s. <laughs> so, anyways, that brings our Mighty Joe Young episode to a close. I will hopefully have it out before 2014. Ah, uh, living the dream. We still have the mummy episode that we recorded a year and a half ago. Oh, Jesus. Yes, we do. Yeah, but we still have like the Universal Monsters theme that we're going to be doing in the second half of this year. So planned uh, uh. for the second half of this year. Where is this? Because it's not on the schedule that I got. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's that and the Wolfman. When are we doing the Wolfman? In October. Are we doing That's when the schedule I sent you. Well, I didn't pay attention to your schedule because I figured you would change it again. So I'm like. Well, yeah, that was one of the ones we were going to do Wolfman on October last year. Mm-hmm. But then we decided let's just take a couple months off. I thought we were doing The Omen. We're doing The Omen too. So we're doing two movies in October. No, no, we're doing Wolfman and Mummy in, in October, and then we're just doing Omen for November and Black Christmas for December. And I might cut this audio out because this schedule is probably not going to reflect what we actually end up doing. This is a part of the podcast where Noah and Evie talk about their schedules. <laughs> and then Tess is on the schedule for next year again. I want to have the argument of like, but we need to do Omen on Halloween, but we don't because kids are always fucking creepy. The fuck yeah. that. We're going to have a horror heavy year anyways because we're doing the West Craven trio. And then we're going to do three horror movies back to back at the end of the year. And then we're going to stick Wicker Man somewhere in there at some point. First of all, the remake is just going to be me like, the kids punches people while wearing a bear suit. We're done. <laughs> remake all the way. Do you recommend this movie? Cage punches a woman while wearing a bear suit. Do you recommend this movie? Cage punches a woman while wearing a bear suit. And like one person would say that as a positive and the other person would say that as a negative. And then we discuss. I don't think I, who was going to say that as a negative? Nick Cage punches a woman wearing a bear suit and I am very offended. And then at one point he like ninja kicks some woman and there's some naked chick wearing a bee beard. I still haven't seen the film. I've just seen the clips. And you don't like Nick Cage. No, I don't. But that movie's hilarious. Is it called? I don't like him. Like he's terrible in that movie. It takes advantage of Nick Cage. And that's what makes it work. Yeah. Nick Cage is kind of terrible. That's kind of the point. Well, anyways, we've pretty much ended the show by this point. I guess we have. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how much of this actually makes it end. Oh, I'll chop it up. <laughs> you know, none of this is going to be in there. No one needs I'll to. leave part of it in just because it was fun. The actual podcast will be 10 minutes long. <laughs> the rest of it is just going to be us discussing Nick Cage. This is the bonus episode. <laughs> so, Tessa, thank you for joining us once again. Thank you for having me. Good night, Evie. Meow, meow. Beep, boop, meow. Beep, boop, meow. Beep, boop, meow. Beep, boop, meow. Thank you for the outtake. Yep. Why was I programmed to feel pain? Why, creator? Why? Well, Evie, I think we found our warning this movie contains spoilers, course language, and. Oh, that's, that. that's, 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 awesome that's all we're going to need. Any schoolgirl fans that are yeah. listening to this are going to be like, oh, hey, cool. And everybody else is going to be like, what the hell is that?